1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH, 255-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Let to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. A little bit warmer in Grand Forks, North Dakota. We're finally past, I think, the worst of it. And uh, I'm really happy for that because negative uh, 70 below is a, is a bit chilly to tolerate, even for a true... Blooded North Dakotan. Well, this week I had a chance to check out a new video editor. It's called Olive Video Editor, Editor olivevideoeditor.org, and it aims to be a free alternative, a replacement, if you were, to high end professional video editing software. They specifically mention Adobe Premiere and Final Cut Pro. Now, in the positive column for this video editor it comes available to you as a flat pack a snap or an app image so you have the opportunity to install this this uh, video editor in a universal packaging flavor of your choice that's pretty much where in my humble opinion the benefits end i think that we have way way too many choices when it comes to Video editing software on Linux. And I know that it is a popular talking point about Linux and open source software to say that choice reigns supreme, to say that the more choices we have, the better, and that's how we're going to develop the highest quality software. Now, in the desktop sphere, I agree with you. When you start looking at desktops like KDE Plasma, when you start looking at desktops like GNOME or desktops like Mate, I agree with you that we wind up with a higher quality product all around when those products compete. Here's the difference between video editors and desktop environments. Desktop environments are not only feature complete, but they meet or exceed the level of quality that you have on competitive operating systems like macOS or Windows. When it comes to video editing software, there are very few pieces of software that we have on Linux that even perform as well as their proprietary alternatives and almost none that can exceed proprietary alternatives. Openshot made this claim a couple of years ago, and I've had the interesting perspective of being able to actually watch this play out because I was following Linux news and I was actually hosting a show about Linux when the news of Openshot came out. And so we watched that software develop, and look where OpenShot is now. That's not a knock on OpenShot. It's a great piece of software. In fact, there are tons of schools that lament how great OpenShot is because it's easy to pick up, it's easy to learn, and kids are able to bang out simple projects very quickly in OpenShot. But you know what the truth is? The truth is that the vast majority of video editing software out there for Linux can do simple things. Caden Live is a very uh, professional tool, actually. It actually works very, very well. And you can get a lot of distance using Caden Live to edit some video. But eventually, you run into limitations of Caden Live. And that's not a knock on Caden Live. I really like the piece of software. I like the folks that work very hard to develop it. But there are some upper limitations of it. And quite frankly, the inter- inter- is- interface is clunky right? The learning curve for Live. nobody is just going to sit down for the first time and pick up editing in Live. It's going to take a little bit of work. It's going to take a little bit of dedication. Now, you can get there if you're a dedicated Linux user and you say, listen, I want to use Linux because I care about the platform. I care about my security. I care about the reliability and I need to have a platform that works and the rug isn't going to get pulled out from under me. Now, that's the boat that I'm in. And when you're in that boat, then you find the tools that get the job done. And Caden Live is certainly one of those tools. But And we're going to talk later on in the episode with Bo Weaver. Bo Weaver is a penetration expert, and he is going to talk to us about walking us through the process of compromising machines and how he does that and makes a living off of doing penetration testing. And Bo will probably tell you that Linux is a more secure, more reliable, more robust operating system. But we need tools, we need available professional tools, and right now we lack that in the non-linear editing world, at least for open source platforms. You notice that the two most successful professional editing tools under Linux are DaVinci Resolve and Lightworks, and both of those are excellent professional tools, and both of those are proprietary software, they're closed source. Okay, so and they have massive companies behind them, which means that they have a budget for developing and all of those sorts of things. So that gets that to a certain degree, have to take that into perspective. But the most successful tools that we have for editing video under Linux are not open source ones. So I have to ask the question, is this the right direction for developers to go when you're looking to 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 kick the ball further down the road for editing video under Linux? Is it the right choice to say, hey? we need to start from the ground up we need to build a video editor that is designed and modeled after the traditional non-linear workflow now to their credit all other non-linear editors under any platform final cut pro and adobe premiere all of those platforms follow a very similar workflow and it's because of that very similar workflow that when final cut pro or when final cut 7 ended and they went to Final Cut 10 a bunch of video editors went that is iMovie Pro and I don't want iMovie Pro I want a true professional product so I'm going to jump over here to Adobe Premiere and guess what the workflow is similar enough that I can make that transition from Final Cut Pro 7 to uh, over to Adobe Premiere and then later on down the road of course Apple refined Final Cut 10 and now it's a fairly capable video editor that a lot of people really like but at the end of the day Both of those workflows, whether it's Final Cut Pro 7, Final Cut 10, or Adobe Premiere, they all generally kind of follow the same workflow. The very first time I opened up Lightworks, I was confused. And mind you, I went to college for communication. I majored in communication. So I took my entire last two years were both doing live on location, uh, you know, field production, which involved video editing. And then post-production work. Now, that was typically centered around newsroom stuff. But you get the point. And the point is that I was trained to use nonlinear editing as part of my college education. And I sat down to use Lightworks dedicated to the Linux platform and understanding that that was my best choice at remaining a video editor and not having to dual boot into Windows. And I struggled to, to get there. So I have to ask the question if this is the right way to go. If you really want to target an audience, target the bloggers, target the YouTube makers, target the independent content creators that have simple workflows that they just need to bang out a video really quick. Because that is how Apple got their penetration with iMovie. It required virtually no learning curve. Any idiot could fire up iMovie and put some fancy transitions and make some jump cuts and you could get a product out there. But if that's where we get to, where the target audience is, if that's where you get to the point where, hey, this is an audience that needs a product, then I come back to OpenShot. Where does OpenShot fit in, in this? Because OpenShot is a very simplistic editor that has a very low learning curve that anybody can pick up. The professional features that all of aims to deliver, and granted, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. This is an alpha release, so obviously all of this could come down the road, and I hope that I'm wrong. I hope that the pessimist in me is wrong, and I hope that, people in the chat room are right and that we have to and that we have to just have a reboot. But there are some basic features like the ability to do proxies which don't exist inside of Olive. Thumbnails for video clips. Any professional that is going to edit a video is going to expect things like thumbnails to exist. And if they don't, they're going to have a really hard time using it. In fact, flat out, they're probably not going to use it. So I really want to keep my eye on this and I wish them well, but I just want to make clear that the next person that's out there, if, if all of us it and that's the last video editor that we have and that ends up being the video editor that succeeds on Linux, then more power to them. And I'm happy to be wrong. Please prove me wrong. But if I'm not and five years goes by and we're back in the exact same position where the next guy wants to invent a video editor and Olive hasn't taken off, and OpenCut hasn't taken off, and Caden Live is still plugging away, but they're still not to the place that Final Cut Pro or Adobe Premiere are, if that's where we are in another five years, then we need to reevaluate the way we're doing this, people. We need to reevaluate the way that we develop software. We need to reevaluate the priorities of developing software. Again, you can join the conversation at 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at AskNoahShow.com. That's how you make your voice heard. Become a part of the conversation. We have a new laptop on the market. It is the Pinebook Pro. It is a it is a ARM-powered Linux laptop, a high-performance ARM-powered Linux laptop created by the same people that gave you the $99 computer. Now, this is a premium machine without the premium price tag. It's just $199. You get an aluminum body, a 14-inch 1080p display, a Rockchip RK3399, 4 gigs of RAM, 64 gigs of eMMC storage. 10,000 milliamp battery, SD card reader, USB 3.0 and 2.0. It supports USB-C both for charging and as a USB port. They also included a courage jack, also known as a headphone jack. It is designed for the professional day-to-day Linux laptop. And so if you need a day-to-day Linux laptop, this might be something you consider. I absolutely will purchase one the the second it is available because I'm so excited to get on this train couple of little criticisms. Why didn't they offer it in a 13-inch version? It's one of the most popular form factors, 15 and 13. If you're going to offer a laptop and only one, I would have went with a 13, but that's just me. Also, developers don't tend to like to emulate cross-architecture because the emulation is poor and and you kind of lack some performance there. The original version lacked GPU drivers, which meant that you had some laggy YouTube video and playback and stability issues, so hopefully we see that getting resolved. But at the end of the day, competition in the ARM space is a good thing. Ryzen is competing with NVIDIA and Intel. We need some competition in the CPU market space. Linus himself said he wanted to see ARM take off and that he would like to do more things on ARM, but he needs a computer powerful enough to be able to compile code. And there were so many almosts with the $99 Pinebook, right? It was a Chromebook competitor, and I was just dealing with this this week where somebody said, I really want a Chromebook. I think I could make that work, but you know what? Google scares me. Chromebook is almost enough for me, but Google scares me, so is there another option? I promise you, if this Pinebook Pro had been out, he probably would have went that direction. Now, we're going to go early to our Linux Newswire newsroom with Eric, the IT guy, because Following up, real shortly, we're gonna. Boy, Bo Weaver is going to join us, and we're gonna teach you how to do some ethical hacking from the Linux Newswire newsroom. Eric diatiga here he is. From the Linux and that is not going to happen because uh, we have a, a video of audio audio corruption. So we'll have to get that worked out, and my apologies uh, for that. If you guys are not checking out the extra credit section by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com, then you're only getting part of the show. You're going to find all of the articles and resources referenced in this episode as well as articles we didn't have time to get into. Take, for example, a custom-made laptop for system administrators. Now, we just talked about the Pinebook Pro. Here is another choice for you. This is a laptop. We'll have the link in the show notes. you have to check it out. Is a tiny laptop that was designed by a system admin for other system admins. It's for folks that have to have a laptop with them 100% of the time. Now, the reality is, as a system administrator, I understand exactly what this guy was going for and exactly what he what he was trying to, to get. Because oftentimes, you get asked, hey, can you reset my permissions on this, or can you move this file here? Could you add my SSH key, right? All of these things are almost impossible to do from a smartphone, and if they are possible, they're very difficult to do from a smartphone. So this tiny laptop allows for him to do a lot of those everyday tasks. It's not a powerhouse. It doesn't replace his daily driver. It's just an extra tool in the toolbox. Now, he designed it with premium parts. He put a premium keyboard because, like he said, he spends a lot of his time in the terminal. He spends a lot of time typing things out. And if you're going to do that, then you want a premium keyboard. You want something that fits your hands. I tried using some of those UMPC uh, computers with the tiny little quarter size keys. They're fantastic if you just need to, to pick some Pluck something out with your thumbs, but at the end of the day, it's going to be very difficult for you to achieve any real task, get any real work done on that thing. You need a proper keyboard. Pointing devices are also something that most laptop manufacturers struggle with because you're not going to get a full touchpad in a small form factor. So you have to go to the track point, IBM track point or the nipple style uh, pointing device. And that's what this laptop does. And so obviously this is not a production machine. It is made specifically by this guy. It was more of his project because he just looked up and said, listen, as a system administrator, I need to have a laptop on my person 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I'm all over the place and I need something that just fits easily into my bag that I can just open up, do a little bit of work on, get some basic tasks done and then close it. Now, obviously, this space is about to explode. If you're following Linux on decks like I'm following Linux on Dex, then you know that this space is getting close to exploding. You know that Samsung is trying to enter a bit of this market, right? You have the developer or you have the, uh, the the person that wants to get just a little bit more work done on their smartphone, and it's not the smartphone itself isn't just quite cutting it, and so they move to something slightly different or they add a couple little features on. And that's what Linux on Dex is doing because you essentially have the ability to install an Ubuntu-based system on your smartphone. And then with a couple of accessories, you can run that thing almost as if it was a Linux laptop. And that's, I think that's a really great way to go. Now, my next guest this hour is Bo Weaver. Uh, Bo Weaver works for a company called Compliance Point. He is a systems uh, penetration tester. He's been doing this basically his whole life. Absolutely brilliant guy. Had a chance to meet him at Southeast Linux Fest and get to know him a little bit and Uh, since then have chatted with him and kind of kept in contact and uh, asked him to come on because a couple of months ago, uh, almost a year ago, actually, we did an episode on system penetration testing and uh, lo and behold, some of the audio was screwed up. And so I wanted to redo that episode, but I wanted to do it better. And so Bo Weaver is an expert and he's the guy that can explain exactly what it takes to do this from day to day. So joining us on the program is Bo Weaver. Hey, Bo, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for taking the time to be here, Bo. So I guess what I want to start with is tell me a little bit about Bo Weaver, how Bo Weaver got started, and what it is you do for a living.
2: Okay. Well, my start with computers was back in 1972 when I was in the Navy and in the Polaris Missile Program. And while I was learning to blow the world up with ICBM missiles, uh, they also had us working on a little research and development project at the time called ARPANET. Now ARPANET, this was right in the very beginnings, and it was just military bases and uh, Berkeley University, MIT, and Stanford University. Those were the only people on it. And what we were working on was routing at the time. And uh, after that, uh, uh, really I really saw computers as a very dangerous thing, to be honest. (laughs) And... uh, really got away from them for a while until I started seeing computers popping up everywhere in normal business, especially in business, and, and, uh, and really when they started appearing in people's houses and stuff, I really started getting interest back into this. And uh, being Native American, the th- three things that defeated Native American people were disease, the use of iron, and the use of paper. We had no concept that, you know, I have this piece of paper, so I own this land, or, you know, I have this piece of paper, so you have to follow this rule. We had no concept of that. So I started really seeing computers as the new paper, and I really thought that some of us Native Americans needed to have a real handle on this new new paper so it couldn't be used against us. And that's actually how I got into the security heart of uh, computers. Uh, from there I uh, started doing a lot of studying on how I went back and I was really amazed the first time I loaded trumpet windsock on a Windows computer and I looked at what trumpet went what a windsock was and I went my god this is what I worked on in the Navy and from that you know I uh, knowledge. I started talking to some uh, geek friends of mine and this is right when BBS services were starting to come about. And so I got hooked up with a bunch of BBS guys and I started helping them back in the beginning getting their BBS systems on the internet being gateways back then because I was one of the few people that really fully understood a TCP IP stack. And from there, what grew into a hobby ended up growing into a business. I had one of the first internet security businesses in Atlanta. But I found out that I was not a good... I was a great engineer, but I'm not a good businessman. And from there, I went in and worked for various companies and done security research, uh, hacking, and security analysis ever since.
1: It's interesting that you say... Computer started to scare you because there's an old IT joke. I work in IT, and the reason that I work in IT means that our house has mechanical locks, it has mechanical windows, our routers run open WRT, there are no smart home, there is no Alexa or Google Assistant, and no internet connected thermostats, right?
2: That's correct. I own a flip phone.
1: You become cognizant of those dangers. Now, A while back we did an episode on the ask Noah show about ethical hacking and I essentially I have gone through the training myself to do ethical hacking and I've done some security consulting but it's not what I do today and interestingly enough that particular episode suffered from a uh, a small technical glitch which means that uh, it the uh, the the quality wasn't there that we'd like to present to the listeners and so when you and I met each other at Southeast Linux fest and kind of got to know each other and, and I started to look and say okay here is somebody who really understands this stuff and does this stuff day to day could explain it far better than me and uh, and has more real life experience and can point and say here's When I actually dealt with that thing, I wanted to bring you on the program and just kind of walk the listeners through exactly what it takes to security test a network, the process that you go to. Because there is a formula, there is a process, and that can be taught in in a one-hour podcast. Even if you wouldn't necessarily call it mastering, you would at least understand the the, the process and the flow, and it would be enough to get somebody started.
2: Yes, in an hour you could get an understanding of it, but really to become a professional pen tester it takes years of training Uh, one thing that when people ask me how do you get into this job the first thing I tell them is is well if you really want to be a successful pen tester go to go to work in a data center for for about three or four years because working in a data center you get you actually physically see the machines you actually physically see the network so you get a better understanding of just you know you've got a physical idea of what's going on a lot better and also you understand how it works the problems that's any data center that uh because that's something i can find you know i exploit a lot of times is, is i understand how things get misconfigured because i've worked in data centers i've I myself have misconfigured devices so I go looking for that and you know that's one thing that helps me is because I've been on the blue team it helps me a lot with the red team.
1: Do you think that there is that still is true in a day of server virtualization and a day of network virtualization that that's still in an accurate portrayal or do you think that if you walked into a data center much of what you would see is just the hosting appliance and not necessarily any of their virtual stuff that follows?
2: Well, one misconception about hacking is is that you're going after the servers and that you're going after the clients. But you know when you go in and you're doing a penetration test, well a, even a real you know even a bad guy hacker, he's not just going after your servers. he's going to go after your switches. He's going to go after your firewalls. He's going to go after your network monitoring devices. He's going to go after any logging systems you've got. Uh, because if you could get control of these systems then you've got a better chance of getting into a server or something and like bypassing the monitoring system because you've already uh, breached the monitoring system so you can turn monitoring off while you're in there it's not always just about the server and that's something you learn in a data center is is, you know you, you put in physical switches you understand how they work and so they give you a better idea, if you get into a switch, what you can do in there.
1: Essentially, where it's lowest hanging fruit, that's what people target. That's what these attackers go after. And so if you can address those lowest hanging fruits, and you see that those exist, and you see that's what's being targeted, then you know how to defend against that, essentially.
2: Yes, that's true. Because, like, you know, a lot of people don't think about it. You know, they put a smart switch in, and they go, oh, nobody's going to get into that. And it's still set up, you know, you know logins, admin, admin. Well, what most people don't understand is, if I get in that switch, then I can start piping out your whole data stream from your SQL server uh, because it goes through the switch. I don't have to own, you know, own the the, the a SQL server to get the data out of it. I got the switch, so now I can pipe that traffic anywhere I want it to go.
1: So let's start with a couple of the basics. Uh, first things first. A couple of disclosures of the way if you are going to go and penetrate penetration test a network or you're going to do some security testing of a network the very first thing is you have to have unequivocally the expressed permission and 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 operate within the knowledge of the company that you're doing this for right because we want to do this above board so under no circumstances should you be doing any of this without expressed uh, uh, permission and consent from the person that who owns the network
2: yes completely uh, a compliance point, and uh, this is something I set up when I became senior engineer, before I test a network, before I ever touch any IPS, they send me an actual copy of the waiver file from the customer that is signed by the CTO with the target IPs listed in my time that I'm allowed to test. And I get a, you know I get a copy of that. I will not, you know, if my manager calls me up and say, hey, Bo, I want you to test XYZ Company, and he doesn't send me that form, I call him up and I go, hey, man, you, you forgot something, because I d- won't touch it. And there's also a second reason. Not only is it legally covering me, I've got a copy of that if the FBI comes and knocks on my door. But not only that, but, you know, in business, we all know that we make, ty- we make ty- typos and those typo, you know like my manager he may fill out an excel sheet with my target ips listed on there and send it to me but maybe he made a typo and so i'm able to look at that waiver and see those ip numbers and then verify you know off the vulnerability scans and stuff that i'm going to be working from that that is the actual targets and so that's also another big help on that. But yes, I never, never touch anything without a piece of paper that says uh, I've got permission to do it. Uh, I, it goes I, back. It goes back to that paper thing I was talking about earlier.
1: <laughs> absolutely, it's just good practice. And so definitely something you want to do. So with that disclaimer out of the way that you should only test on your own equipment or somebody who has given you their expressed written consent. And I I guess one thing I I, I guess we should add is it should also define the scope, right? Not just that they allow you to do it, but it should define the scope that this is what you're allowed to do.
2: Uh, like DOS attacks we're not allowed to do DOS attacks and actually DOS attacks denial service attacks I don't really call those a hack that's some script kitty just playing around yes it it will knock a you know it can it can hurt a business by knocking their web server offline but you're not you're not getting you're not actually breaching the system and one thing, you know, in our, our rules of engagement is, is when we go in, we we try our best. I mean, it does occasionally happen that we knock a machine offline, but our rules of engagement are is we're not to knock anything offline to the best of our abilities, and we don't run denial of service attacks, and we don't destroy data either. That's another thing. I mean, we copy that, sample data, like if I breach your system, get into your database, I'll do a sample of a hundred rows, but I don't completely download, you know, dump your whole database. But I'll get a hundred rows as a sample to show that I got in there and I got credit card information. But other than that, we don't go any further than that. But those those rules of engagement are laid out. They even tell you a lot of the tools we'll use while we're trying to do this this test. And uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's about four pages long. <laughs>
1: At the end of the day, we are you are trying to help these people, right? We're not trying to make their life more difficult, and so that's thats a huge part of it. So with all of the, uh, uh, I guess, uh, disclaimers out of the way, uh, we can actually get into this. So you've been hired by XYZ Company, and XYZ Company says, hey, we want you to come in, and we want you to do a test. Now, when th- the few times that I've been consulted to do this, Bo, one of the things that I ask them is what, and it goes back to that scope, Are we just testing software and computers, or am I allowed to use any tool at my disposal? Because often what you'll find is the most exploitable element is, in fact, the human element. And a lot of places or potential employers are not okay with you testing that because it essentially evolves into lying to employees to see if you can get through what it would it has nothing really to do with the computer network and rather has to do with security practices but oftentimes that's an easy way in and when I'm selling consulting services one of the things I explain to people is hey you know what do you want it to replicate a real-world attack because in a real world there are no rules I'm curious do you uh, do you specify something similar
2: yes uh, we do really both styles of testing Um, the majority of the testing I do is for PCI and HIPAA compliance And in that, you... Phishing, like phishing emails and stuff comes under a different category than the actual simulated attack on the network. But uh, in this testing, the penetration test is a simulated attack. I hit your network just like a real bad guy. And I go into it with that mindset. I go... When I come at your company, I come to steal your stuff. And... And, I, and, I, and as far as the rules of engagement is to, with tools and stuff, we're allowed to use any tools that are commonly available or any methods commonly available. We do offer uh, phishing tests and user security tests, but that's another package that we do. And really, uh, we, have another, we have another couple of people at work that handle the phishing attacks and stuff but that that is a separate thing and we plainly state that in our rules of engagement you know I'm I'm, you know one thing I'm not going to do is send the systems admin a email and get him to click on a link and, and compromise the network in that way for one thing it's not a valid test because if he sees an email coming from me and he knows I'm the pen tester and I send him you had a a pdf and writing something well you need to check this out before i do my test that's cheating yeah so we we don't do anything like that
1: nope i think that makes a lot of sense and i'm i'm happy to hear that you kind of follow the same uh, essentially the same standard that we do or you kind of go about it the same way that we did so let's dig into this because i know there's a lot of people that are going to want to hear this from you bo so you've been hired by xyz company to test and they have said uh, we want you to limit the scope, not necessarily to the human element, not necessarily to the to the social aspect, but we want to limit it to the technical aspect. So go ahead and test from a technical perspective. Test our network. Test our servers. There are five or four, four or five different stages that we use. We use reconnaissance, scanning, gaining access, maintaining access, and clearing tracks. If you ever take the ethical hacker course, those are the steps that they're going to run you through. So let's start with reconnaissance. Essentially what you want to do is learn as much about the network and computing environment as possible so that you can uh, later on initiate an attack. Walk us through what that process looks like.
2: Okay it's not just footprinting the network it's also footprinting the company. Uh, reconnaissance is a lot more than just you know uh, scan in map scanning the network to see what active host you got a lot of very very valuable knowledge can be gained from Google searches or tools like MultiEgo which is a uh, intelligence reconnaissance tool where you can go and it spiders the internet and finds out very valuable information about a company and a lot of times we will find doc files that are hidden on servers and uh, you can gain a lot of information from that especially when you get into the phishing attack Part of the footprinting gives you a lot more knowledge and a lot more gold than footprinting the network because that gives you, you can learn about the people that work there, the styles of their emails, because a lot of times you'll, or the style of their writing, because you find a lot of the persons writing on the internet, and that's a very big step in it that most people don't realize. They just think we're going after the network. No, we're looking at your digital presence on the Internet. We're looking at your Facebook page. We're looking at your Google Plus. We're looking at all, you know, we're basically digitally dumpster diving on your company.
1: Do you, as you go through this process, obviously you are doing reconnaissance on the people involved and the facility. Do you ever just go and sit at one of these facilities and just people watch for a couple of hours?
2: On some engagements, we do. It, 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 we have a really different styles of engagement. There's just the PCI testing and then there's full advanced persistent threats to where you physically try to go into the company. We don't do that very much at compliance point. We've only been, I've only been on site four or five times with Compliance Point, but uh, with another company that I work for that will remain nameless, we did a lot of physical penetration testing on it. And when I had my security company, that was a big thing. I mean, that was in my package of security testing was the physical security testing because you could take 10 USB drives, drop them in a parking lot, and seven of them will call home. I guarantee it.
1: The uh, I, I read an interesting statistic a while back, and it said that if you had a flash drive that was dropped in a parking lot, it had a 75% chance of being plugged into a computer. If you wrote the current year and then payroll on that flash drive, that number jumped to 95% of being inserted into a corporate machine.
2: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Those drives that I... Those bad USBs that I drop in the parking lot, that's something I always have, is some, you know, an Excel sheet in there, Mark Payroll or something, because you know that people are going to click on that.
1: Absolutely. So getting uh, back to some of the technical stuff, you've done your your personal recognizance. You understand the players involved. You understand the people. You have a pretty good idea of the company. You have a pretty good idea of all that. So now you've opened up your laptop, and you're going to do some some hacking, I guess, as 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 some people would like to think of it. What are some of the tools that you're using to digitally footprint the, the network or the systems?
2: Systems. Uh, we used, uh, well, if you're doing it from home, and like a lot of people, they'll like load up Kali on a USB drive or something and play with that. If you're using Kali, it comes with open VAS, and that's a great vulnerability scanner. At work, we use Nexpose, which is a Rapid7 t- uh Vulnerability scanner, and we use it because it's more enterprise grade, and we scan a lot of networks. So we use the the Nexpose scanner because it'll handle all the scans. where open OpenVAS is more of a one person running a scan against one network, and but not only vulnerability scans, but from there, then we start uh, using tools like Metasploits to uh, gain access to the to the network. To your systems
1: and I, I want to stop and talk just about Metasploit for a moment so one of the things that Metasploit I've, I've said this before I think that Metasploit is kind of the apex of ethical hacking that's what everybody thinks of when they think of ethical hacking what Metasploit is, is essentially a suite of tools um, that you point at a given uh, machine or network or appliance or whatever it is you want you're targeting and it will go and based on what it can determine about that device we will try to come back and say, here are some known exploits that you could run against it. Is that a fair summation of what Metasploit is and how you use it?
2: Yeah, well, the best way to talk about Metasploits is is it's a a framework. Uh, What it is is Metasploits is the framework. And then, see, back in the day, it used to be I had to go and find individual exploits. And a lot of those exploits, maybe I could gain a shell into a system but then I couldn't use another tool to like elevate my privilege through that tool because they weren't combined in a framework which made it really hard what Metasploits does is it being a framework you can use something like eternal oh you can use something like PSEXEC to get into a system with a user account so you got a normal users credentials and so you shell into that system using a PowerShell framework to get into the system but then with, with Metasploits, since it's a framework you can use a you can use a post exploitation tool to like elevate that user's privilege to system level access and you can do that all inside the framework and it makes it just so much easier and instead of trying to use several tools that won't talk to each other and also yeah you're right you can like run a search in in Metasploit to search for CVE 17-010 and it will pull up that exploit that's in Metasploit for that vulnerability. So if you find that CVE vulnerability in your scan then you go to Metasploit, find that exploit and pop, you know, pop that module in and now you can use it against the system
1: what uh, we're and we're kind of jumping around here in the uh, in the in the outlined process but um that's okay because we're we're taking it from somebody who does it uh, real life in in the world um talk to me a little bit bo if you would about the difference between active and passive footprinting what does that mean and 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 how do we apply those principles
2: okay active footprinting is actively scanning like nmap is a active footprint like even if you're just pinging you're running a ping scan on the network to see what hosts are active in on that network you're still actively hitting those hosts passive footprinting is using something like wireshark where you're just capturing pack- packets going across the network that your computer is seeing you're not actively touching anything, you're just lis- just listening to the air as it goes by. Or like you go into a coffee shop and you fire up EtherApe, which is a marvelous little graphics tool that you could watch everybody in the coffee shop and see what sites they're going to. You can't see their traffic, but you could see that the person sitting over at the other table is going to Google Mail. And that is passive because you're not actually touching anything, you're just getting what's floating around.
1: Now is some of that changing as we go to systems where we have encrypted DNS queries? And-
2: yes, that encryption is a great layer of security when it comes to passive footprinting because you 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 can still see the traffic, but it's just junk. I mean, you can still, well, like, you know, when you go to Gmail, you're using HTTPS. Now, that person sitting in the coffee shop, I can't see their email. The only thing I can see is, is they're going to HTTPS, gmail.com. Because of that HTTPS, even if I you know, used, used another tool to where I could man in the middle of that stream, yeah, I'm going to be able to get their email, but it's not going to make any sense because it's encrypted.
1: Okay, so we have started out, we've done our our reconnaissance, we understand the layout, we understand the network, we've done some scanning and vulnerability searching and found some machines that have some known vulnerabilities. How do we actually go about gaining access to these machines? What does that process look like?
2: Well, once you find the machine and you find the the machines exploitable, uh, then you use a tool like Metasploits and you, like I said, you find which exploit for the vulnerability. Well, let's say Windows and Eternal Blue which was a exploit leak from the NSA which at the time, man, I mean you could walk into any Windows system with that. And what you do is you load that module up in Metasploit, put in the IP number and tell it exploit and that, and that exploit will run against that machine and take control of it and give you a shell prompt. And so you're right in that machine.
1: And you can do this from Metasploit inside of that software tool, so you're essentially running that single software tool, and there's literally just a button that says, essentially, give me access using this uh, using this exploit?
2: Well, I run everything. I'm old school, so I run Metasploit from the command line. So I type exploit. But you'll see that exploit run, and it'll say connection, gaining shell, and then you'll see a c colon windows back, you know, c colon backslash windows backslash system 32 directory. Awesome.
1: Now, let me ask you this, Bo. A lot of people uh, split up at this point in in the model for ethical hacking, they split up gaining access and Elevating access. And so the idea is you gain some sort of access to the machine, whatever access you can get, and then from there you try to elevate your privileges. Now you kind of briefly touched on this already. I take it this is part of your workflow?
2: Yes. It depends on how I got in the machine. Let's say I was using. Uh, passive footprinting like Wireshark and I'm capturing packets and one thing that's really bad about Windows is is Windows actually sends out your username and password hash in an art broadcast. Really? Now I can catch. yes.
1: Wow. I was not aware of that. That's, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that when we get to the end. um i want to talk I want to touch on the security differences between Linux and Windows because I've made some assertions over the years that have been challenged pretty much every time I make them, and it would just be interesting to get your take on that. So after you have gained access, you have do you run more exploitation tools to see if there are additional exploits that you can run now that you have some basic access gained to the system?
2: Well, to elevate privileges, like I said, I'm using Metasploit so I could could put that shell in the background and then go to a post-exploitation tool. And those are various tools, like there's tools in there to turn antivirus off. Now, let's say I see that the machine is running antivirus. I'll run that post-exploitation tool and turn Windows Defender off. And then once I got it turned off, then there's other post explo- exploits that I can run and that will give me complete syst- not just administrator level access but system level access well beyond administrator. And once <laughs> I've got that I can do anything in the world of the machine and also from that server a lot of times I can start I can make a connection into the domain controller and from there I can download all the user accounts.
1: So at this point in the process, we have access to the machine. We have maybe elevated access and got as much access as we can get. The problem is, of course, there are constantly people in companies that are paid to monitor this stuff and to try to find people that have broken into the network and kick them back out. So at this point, we do something called maintaining access. And the idea is to intentionally install or configure the system to give ourselves another way back in in case our original exploit is patched or found out. How do we go about doing that, Bo?
2: okay that's called persistence and really in PCI and HIPAA testing we don't do much persistence we get in the machine collect our data and get out but a in a real attack that is what a bad hacker is going to do is, is he's going to once he gets into your machine he's going to drop a payload and that's going to be a persistent payload that is going to call back to a command and control server and it'll. It'll run every time you boot your system up. He'll put it in startup, or he'll put it in your uh, the system scheduler. That's what it's called in Windows. But you can put it in the system scheduler so that it will like call home at five o'clock to the attacking server every day. And so you can have your you know you can have your uh, your your attacking server offline but you can turn it online because you know this thing's going to fire up at five o'clock and it'll call home and then from there you you can go right back into the machine you've got that same shell access that you had before
1: do you have a particular piece of software, uh, call home software, that, that is like, this is the thing I carry with me, and if I ever needed to exploit a Windows machine, this is the piece of software I would use. Is there one that is kind of uh, the go-to standard, the gold standard like Metasploit is for uh, for discovering vulnerabilities?
2: Well, Metasploit also comes with a tool called MSF Venom. and what that tool will do, it will custom write you a Trojan and that's normally what i use because you can customize your your trojan in various ways so that antivirus won't see it if you just build a standard trojan for metasploits using that msf venom uh, most antivirus will see see that but there's ways of putting code into that trojan to where it hides and masks the fact that it's a trojan and it'll get by that antivirus and that's normally the tool I use. There are a lot of what they call rats, which is remote access Trojan, and there's a lot of those out on the internet. But uh, like I said, I I use Metasploit so much, and I use it the handler to capture the traffic. So I just that's my main thing that I use. I just build a custom virus and use it.
1: So at this point, now that we have a backdoor back in, we've got the machine. We essentially own that machine at that point. What do we do? I guess we go about cleaning up our tracks, making sure that we can't be discovered and removing as much evidence as, as we can that we were there. What does that process look like?
2: Uh, normally, it's just a matter of uh, deleting the event logs or deleting the log files on a, like on a Linux server. You just go in there and delete logs, and now there's no track of you. Yes, they know you've been in there, but they don't know where you went. Metasploit even comes with a tool that will completely blank out the event viewer on a a Windows machine. You just run that Metasploit module and there's no event logs anymore.
1: I said uh, said at the very beginning of the interview that I thought Metasploit was kind of the gold standard of hacking tools, and you can see why we keep coming back to it, right? Every step in this process seems like it's one more thing that Metasploit can do. And so if you've not played with Metasploit, you should absolutely check it out. Of course, it comes on distros like Kali Linux, um, but you can also install it just on your own machine. Now, Bo, one thing I want to get a handle on is I have said numerous times since episode one of this show that I believe Linux is a more secure operating system than Windows. And that Our assertion has been challenged numerous times by people who have said things like, well, Linux is only more secure because it's not as popular. And if Linux was as popular as Windows was, then it would get exploited as much as Windows does. And while I absolutely agree that to a certain degree there is a certain amount of security in obscurity, the reality is that the fundamental layers that make Linux lend it to be more secure than Windows because Windows got access control elevation years after Linux had it. And now Linux is working on se Linux and Windows doesn't have anything really close to that. And I'm wondering, is that an accurate assertion on my part or am I totally off? And is it just a function of Windows being more popular?
2: Well, this being a family show and about Windows being more secure than Linux, I got to call BS. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, that's fair you I mean you deal with this stuff day to day so as you see these insecure systems the the, the amount of exploits you see you must say to yourself because you, I know you you're a Linux guy you must say to yourself man this is why I don't have any Windows computers in my house because this kind of problem could never occur on a Linux system
2: that's exactly right I mean you got to remember Windows in the beginning was a standalone desktop operating system. That's what it was designed to do. And Windows all along has always thought about legacy. and they still cut some of the things. Like I said, you know you can capture usernames and hashes in art broadcast. And that goes back to the days of NetBuoy back in the 1990s. Why are you still using that? Now, this is not 1990, and we're not even using NetBIOS anymore. And because of that, that, and they got into this thing of the ease of use. You know, oh, it's ease of use. It's ease of use. Yes, having to put your username and password in to do something to the, you know, to log into the system. That, you know, that's a pain. But still. You know, if you want this is the thing I used to say about ease of use. Oh, you want ease of use. Well, then how come you don't take your key ignition out of your car and put a toggle switch and a push button in your car? And also, you can take the locks off your house because think about it, if you don't have any locks on your house, when you got your hands full of groceries, you can get into your house a lot easier because you don't have to open the door with a key. I
1: think this is one of the things that puts Linux and has kept Linux ahead of the game, right? Because at the end of the day, you can't make a bullet point in a PowerPoint presentation selling the benefits of Windows by saying that we remove this obscure thing that happened back in the nineties where it transitions or where it transmits the username and and passwords over the ARP. Like nobody, the vast majority of users don't understand that and don't care about it. And so it's not a bullet point and thus they don't invest any money in Linux, things that aren't sexy and aren't necessarily selling points. There's somebody out there that cares. And so there's somebody out there that's working on that and that cohesive uh, independent workflow where you've got little tiny experts working on all facets and all areas of the entire operating system is what brings us to a greater operating system in the end
2: yeah that also you got to remember linux came from unix you know it's kind of its papa and i worked on unix back in the 70s and unix design systems what even you know whether it be solaris aix att unix they were all designed to be a network operating system they are even back in the beginning you know A normal user on the machine did not have root access to it. I mean it was designed from the very beginning and I mean even with Windows still now you set a user account up and it makes you admin. I don't want to be admin when I'm like talking to you on this web broadcast. I want to be a normal user.
1: It's not only interesting to hear this from somebody who does this day to day, but it's also interesting to hear this from somebody who I know is a true Linux enthusiast, somebody who really understands the technology and cares about the technology, values open source, values Linux, values security. I think you have a lot to offer people if they check out your website, bowweaver.com. You've got a lot of information there um, to help people understand and own their own technology and keep themselves safer uh, online
2: well thank you and by the way it's com because i've got other machines in my dns so you got to put the dub 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 in there
1: you don't you don't wildcard. that's and that's good for you Bo weaver senior pen tester for compliance point in atlanta Georgia. www.boweever.com. Bo weaver thanks so much for taking the time to be here on the s yes, noah show we really appreciate it we'll get you back in the program real soon
2: thank you for having me and uh i really enjoyed myself and yeah i like being on here and and talk about hacking because, like you you know, you know, mentioned several times, ethical hacking. Actually, hacking is hacking. It's the person's morals that's doing the, the work. What keeps me from being a millionaire and living on an island is my morals. I'm an honest and moral person, so I don't steal. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric the IT Guy.
0: Hey Noah, happy to be with you again, and here are your Linux and Open Source Headlines. A few weeks ago we mentioned big plans for the Thunderbird project this year. The first step in that plan has been completed. Thunderbird 60.5.0 was released. Some of the highlighted features include search engine support with DuckDuckGo and Google, security fixes, and support for WeTransfer for large file sharing. While this is only a maintenance update, the Thunderbird Project is working their 2019 plan to reinvigorate the desktop mail client. Google and Sony Pictures have been working together for some time on a visual effects renderer. Now, their hard work has been released as open source. Project OpenQ enables designers to schedule jobs locally or in cloud-based rendering farms. Sony Pictures utilized Q- uh, Q3 over the past 15 years for hundreds of films. Sony then partnered with Google to allow support for the GCP, Google Cloud Platform, and release their efforts to the public. You can view the code and contribute back through GitHub. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric the IT Guy.
1: Thank you, Eric. Eric joins us usually at the bottom of the hour, but uh, we're pushing the clock today with a couple of technical issues. That's okay, we powered through. Hey, did you know the show is available? is a downloadable podcast. That's right. To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You get the latest course by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems. Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This summer, the show may be over. There's plenty more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com.